During the summer, for our messages, I thought we would do something a little bit different. We will uh, leave our study in Hebrews for a time. We'll come back and pick up at chapter 10 uh, in the fall. But I'm going to start a series that I've entitled Wisdom from the Heart of God's Word. It's the heart of God's Word, I'm calling it, because we're going to go right to the middle of our Bibles, to Psalms and Proverbs. But I'm calling it Wisdom from the Heart of God because Psalms and Proverbs are a part of a section in the Bible. You know, when they sort of divided them off, they've divided them out into you know, history and the writings. And then there's a section in Psalms, five books, or a section in the middle, five books that are called Wisdom Literature. So Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And so I want to take the messages in the summer and just look a little bit at a number of Psalms and then a little bit from Proverbs as well. And Proverbs especially is full of practical wisdom. That's why this is called wisdom literature. It gives us the right way to live and a wrong way to live in a series of short, pithy, to-the-point sayings. The Psalms are a little bit more diverse, but one thing that they have in common is that they were all written as songs. They, they were written to be sung. And just like our hymns that we sing now, there are different feels to different songs. Some of them are more lament, some of them are more uh, celebratory, and that's what the psalms are like. But within that collection of songs are some that, uh, that have uh, been identified as wisdom psalms. Uh, they basically do the same thing, as I mentioned in Proverbs. They give advice on the right way to live, the wise way, as compared to a futile and unwise way to live. And so we're going to look at four or five of those kinds of psalms this summer before we go to the book of Proverbs in, in August. But before we go into today's message, let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a place to go when we look for practical wisdom. The passage that Todd read today through James, it says that if we need wisdom, we just need to ask. And so, Lord, we do pray as we look into your word even today that you would provide for us wisdom. We surely do need it. Lord, we thank you for the advice that you give from your very own heart about how to traverse this road that makes up the journey of our lives. And so as we look into your word now, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to understand and to, and to be ready and willing to receive what you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Which way are you going? Those words in the title of this sermon are words that will sometimes be uttered as part of a conversation, many times in the front seat of a vehicle. Which way are you going? Or sometimes they come from the back seat, right? And we have a name for those kinds of people that give advice from there. But they're the opening words in a conversation that could have the potential to get a little heated. They involve a little bit of a discrepancy in the direction one person who's not the driver would take to get to a particular destination with the direction that the driver them, themselves decided to take to get to that same destination. Those words, which way are you going, are an indicator that there are two different kinds of wisdom in operation 
in the same vehicle at the same time. One person thinks one way might be faster or more efficient. The other person thinks a different way might be faster. And those two philosophies are in the process of colliding right there in that confined place in that particular vehicle. Well, that's what many of these wisdom psalms and proverbs are about. They present two different ways, two antithetical ways of going about things. And because these are in the Bible, they ultimately show us the right way and the wrong way, or in the words of Psalm 1, the way of the wicked as opposed to the way of the righteous. But those two competing ways aren't only in Psalms and Proverbs. In Jesus' longest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the last part especially is filled with those opposing ways. And so in Matthew 7, you'll read about two gates with two roads, a wide road and a narrow road. You'll read about two trees with two different kinds of fruits, good fruit or bad fruit. You'll read about two houses, one built by a wise man and one built by a foolish man. Jesus is just making the point there that someone is either for him or against him. There's no in-between. There's no taking a little bit here and a little bit there. You're either with him or against him. Now the problem with that is that that kind of thinking doesn't fit too well with our, um, shall we call them, modern sensibilities. In our age of tolerance, where there are many different shades of meaning, two ways seems to be way too limited, way too narrow. Some might even say that that kind of thinking is extreme or oppressive even. And even as Christians... That sort of thinking is working, maybe we should say worming its way into our minds and our way of ascribing meaning to the issues of our day. And they do this by actually using the language of a third way. They don't hide it. They don't like that there's just one way or another way. They want a third way. We're starting to see this in churches that would describe themselves as evangelical. And they're applying it to many of the social issues of our day, including the one that's on the front burner right now, the issue of same-sex marriage. So I just say that so that you can be on the lookout for this. In a day when we desperately need clarity, especially from churches, it seems like charity is starting to trump clarity. We don't need fuzziness in our day. We need the clear truth. As Christians, we do indeed need to be charitable. But that ought never to happen by compromising or by accommodating the word of God. So Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. Psalms talks about the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. There's not a third way that I can see there. So let's go right to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a familiar psalm to many of you. Uh, many Many people have said that It's the first psalm in the collection because basically it's a summary of all the other 149 psalms. One commentary said that Psalm 1 is the text and all the other psalms together are an explanation or an exposition of that psalm. It actually starts out by telling us how we can be happy and blessed. That's something we all want. How you can be fulfilled in your life. 
But it's also got a warning in there for someone who doesn't follow the path that God has laid out for us. And so it's really just holding out for us the way of wisdom. Which way are you going? So let me read that psalm for us. And as I'm reading, just to encourage you to look for three things that this psalmist holds out here as benefits. Three carrots that he leaves dangling for someone who takes the right path. And as you're looking for those, I'll give you a hint on the first one. The first one is in the very first word. So Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So for someone that follows the words of wisdom in this psalm, you've got a promise of blessing there in verse 1. Then down at the end of verse 3, there's another promise. Here it's a promise of prosperity. In all that he does, he prospers. And then at verse 6, right at the end, it tells us that God is the source of those benefits. But it adds a third benefit there. It says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now that doesn't just mean that God knows where we are. He knows where we're going. He knows our way, although that is true. But it's more than that. It's, it's way more intimate than that. The promise is for a relationship with God, with, uh, for fellowship with God. Because the opposite is the way of the wicked, and that they will perish. It says there, the way of the wicked will perish, meaning that there's no fellowship with God there. And so you put all that together, and we could say that this psalm is telling us is is that there is a way to ensure blessing, prosperity, and fellowship with God. There is a way to ensure that, that you are blessed by God, that you enjoy prosperity, and that you have fellowship with God, that you walk in his way. But the opposite is also true here, isn't it? There is a way to not receive, and indeed to nullify and to reject those benefits, blessing, prosperity, Fellowship with God. Now, when we uh, cheer someone on, maybe when our children are in sports or in school and they receive an award, we often say something like, way to go, right? We're saying that they've done something well, way to go. Uh, But it's usually after the fact. Well, Psalm 1 is an encouragement from God that while we're still traveling in this journey that is our life, God is beckoning us with, here's the way to go if you want to be happy in life. And we see three nuggets of wisdom from above here in this psalm. The first is that you must be judicious in the company that you keep. Look again at verses 1 and 2. There are three groups of people in verse 1, and then there's really a fourth person mentioned in verse 2. 
But together they tell us that the man who is blessed will pay attention to the company that he keeps. The Psalms are written as Hebrew poetry. And so here you have all these parallel thoughts there in verse 1. They're they're put in there in in a beautiful sort of way in these groupings of three lines. And so maybe instead of reading from, from left to right for a minute, just look from top to bottom. First you have walks not, nor stands, nor sits. Parallel thoughts. Then you have counsel, way, and seat. And then the people, the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. So when you put all those together, you have blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is the way Hebrew poetry works. Not so much like we have in English where all the lines rhyme with each other, but they have parallel thoughts in each of the lines. And that's the end of the literature lesson for today. But here's the lesson for us. If you aspire to be blessed, if you aspire to be a blessed person, the one that this psalm is, is offering out for us, then it says, don't do this in verse 1. He starts with what you don't want to do. You don't want to go in the way of these people here in verse 1. You don't want to walk with them. You don't want to stand with them. You don't want to sit with them. And these people, actually, you go down the list, go from bad to worse. It starts with the wicked. These are, you could say, these are just generally the unsaved. And then it goes to the sinners, So now you have people who are uh, in outright rebellion against God, and they're not afraid to tell you about it. And finally, it goes to the scoffers. Now, Now you're not just evil or rebellious, but these are people who outright mock anything that is godly. We can see all these kinds of people around us, can't we? There are those who just don't believe in God, but they stay pretty quiet about it. You just know that godliness is, is not one of their top priorities. Then there are the people who are unashamedly in rebellion against God. They are the sinners, and they don't care if anybody knows that they're sinners. And then there are the people who are outright antagonistic and and outspoken against anything and everything that's from God. They'll take any and every opportunity to mock God and to mock Christianity. But this is addressed, did you notice, not so much to these people. It's talking about the way of wisdom and how a wise person will not associate with those kinds of people. This is about associations, about the kind of company that you keep. And so let's just focus on that first line. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now there are no shortage of people who offer advice and counsel in our day and age, are there? But just for a second, let's take this out of the realm of individual people and just group things together. Our whole culture is dispensing counsel. Our world is telling you how to live and which, which way to take. They're doing it relentlessly, 24-7. In your downtime, what do you do? You might watch TV. You might read the newspaper. You might get on the internet. You might listen to music. You might play games on your Uh, on your phone or on your gaming uh, console. If you're in school or college, you're being given a philosophy on how to live. So it's happening all the time. 
Even the, the commercials and the ads and, and the billboards and the magazine covers, covers that you don't intentionally set out to read are giving you counsel. Just as you walk through the grocery line or as you drive down the road. But this is saying, as far as you can help it, do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Ephesians 5.15 says, look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise but as wise. Pay attention to, to what comes into your mind and, and what goes into your ears and what comes before your eyes. Psalm 101 verse 3 says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Don't be haphazard with this. Be vigilant. The winds of, of culture are making this more difficult all the time. They're, they're blowing in the opposite direction which is why even more vigilance is required to stand against the, the tornado or the, the prevailing wind. But this is also talking individually, saying choose your friends and acquaintances carefully and wisely. Now this is especially true for you that are our children and young people. I know we have a lot of our, our high schoolers are away at camp this week, a lot of our young adults are away serving in camps but if you are a, 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 a Christian young person, this is very important. Ask yourself if your friends are serving to help you grow closer to God or if they serve to draw you further away from God. I remember well that you face pressure to fit in and to not stand out. And I know that good Christian friends are few and far between. And so... So you need to be praying for the courage to, to leave those friendships that are drawing you away from God. I love the plea from the songwriter in Psalm 119, verse 115. He says, Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. He knew that his um, ungodly acquaintances were driving him away from the commandments of God. And so he's, he's praying... He's writing in this psalm and asking all those evildoers to depart from me. Get away from me. Why? So that I can easier keep God's commandments. So pray for courage to leave those friendships. And then pray and ask God to put people into your life that will help you grow closer to God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. But skipping down to verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. There's the antidote, isn't there? Here's, here's how you can stand against the winds of culture. It comes by keeping company with the Lord himself. And you can keep company with God by constantly delighting in and meditating on his word. Interesting, I just, the song title just came into my head. What a friend we have in Jesus, Right? Friends of this world, the friends that you have in, in, in school, all your acquaintances, they're going to draw you away from God. But you do have a friend. If you can't find anyone else, you do, do have a friend in, in Jesus. If the world is coming at you 24-7 with its message, then work to hear 24-7 from the voice of God. Delight in his word. Meditate on his word. Start young with this. Christian parents, if you have young children, expose them to God's word early. 
and not only expose them, but help them to, to delight in God's word. And this is going to take some effort and some intentionality. I'm actually excited to hear that some of the men in our church are really trying to, trying to figure out for themselves how to lead their families in this area. That is a good thing. Let's keep going on that. But this is something that crosses all ages. Be constant in God's word. Meditate on it day and night. God's word, if you do that, will fortify you and will help you fend off the ungodly influences that surround you. Soak yourself in it in such a way that it informs your conversations and informs your attitudes. Charles Spurgeon said that the kind of man described here carries the text with him all day long. Now, he doesn't mean that he's literally carrying his Bible with him, but, but that he's constantly influenced by it. So just ask yourself, what does your life show you about what you delight in? Do you delight more in associating with your non-believing friends around the water cooler or in the lunchroom or in the dressing room or in the coffee shop or on social media? Or do you delight more in being around the law of the Lord? This doesn't mean we we can't have uh, relationships with non-Christians. In fact, we should, because we need to be sharing the gospel with them. And if that's what you're doing when you're with your non-Christian friends, then keep doing it. But delight, make sure your number one priority, your number one area of delight is in the Word of God. Be judicious in the company that you keep. The second nugget of advice and wisdom from Psalm 1 is that your foundation must be secure. Look again at verses 3 and 4. Here he he gives a couple of uh, comparisons or uh, analogies from nature about the kind of company you should keep. He is like, here's the analogy, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. And so you see here that a tree that is firmly planted and that is fruitful and that is flourishing. Or you see the chaff that's driven away. And so the encouragement here is to be tree-like. If you make the connections in this verse, the tree is the godly man of verse 1, the the blessed man, the righteous man. Notice there that he is planted. This is not some wild shoot that grows wherever. This tree has been intentionally chosen and planted and secured. We just did a whole bunch of landscaping in our yard this year, and we bought a number of trees to go along with that. Well, I can say that because I invested some money in those trees, I pay a lot more attention to those trees than the ones that were already there when we moved in. I want to make sure that they are well watered, that they're standing straight up, that they are sturdy. The righteous person is sturdy because he's been meditating and feeding from the solid stream of God's word. He is fruitful and flourishing, even amongst a forest that is dry, a culture that promises many things but is ultimately fruitless and empty. And all that he does, he prospers. His life is valuable and brings forth fruit. This is not material prosperity, but a life that is filled with, uh, filled with good works toward other people. 1 Timothy 6.18, Paul instructs Timothy to tell Christians that are wealthy, he says, instruct them to be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. 
thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's what it means when it says in Psalm 1, in all that he does, he prospers. He is rich in good works. Amongst other things. He's also prosperous in, in the grace of God. It's been poured out. But then, the opposite there is the wicked. The wicked are not so. They are not planted, secure, or firm. If the blessed man is like a tree planted, the wicked are like chaff. What's chaff like? And in those days in Israel, the way I understand it, is that the threshing floor would actually be up on top of a hill, which is the location where it was naturally the most windy. And so the grain was crushed, and then they would take a winnowing fork and toss it up in the air where the wind would blow the chaff away, and then the grain, the good stuff, would fall down to the threshing floor. And so verse 4 says, the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. And, and so here you have the opposite of a securely planted tree, don't you? The ones that do not have the foundation of the law of the Lord will just drift with the winds that are blowing. Paul uses that same image of wind in Ephesians 4, and he's, he's talking there about how we ought to grow as believers. And then he gives a reason. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's what someone looks like who is not firmly planted. They're like chaff that's just carried about by the wind. One thing sounds good for time, and then so does the next thing. And off they go. There's, there's no firm footing. And the result is they're like chaff, which the wind blows away. And then one last nugget of wisdom in verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. So here's a summary. Wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so the advice here is, is the route that leads to your destination must be given some serious consideration. The route that leads to your destination must be given some serious consideration. It must be given serious consideration because of what will come in the future. I think in this context of wisdom, the judgment might not be talking directly about future judgment. It's saying that the consequences of foolishness are going to eventually catch up to someone who does not acknowledge God, even in this life. That person will not go unpunished forever. But this can be extended to the future as well. There is a judgment to come. Verse 5 talks about how sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. I think that's talking about the future. As we live in this world now, and even sometimes in the walls of the church, sinners and saints, the righteous and the wicked, stand together. We coexist. But there will be a separation later. There is, you know, as I was reading that, it seems to me that there's a real aloneness in that statement. They won't stand in the congregation of the righteous. They'll be left to wallow away from any righteousness at all. The wicked cannot live in heaven. Spurgeon said, Sooner can a fish live upon a tree than the wicked in paradise. At some point, the ungodly will be separated from the godly. So in verse 6, we have a summary statement about the destination of both these choices. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, 
but the way of the wicked will perish. Interesting that it doesn't talk about the people themselves. It says the Lord knows the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked will perish. People are judged by the way that they have chosen to walk. Depending on the way they walk, whether they're wise or foolish, whether they're godly or ungodly, depending on their lifestyle, depending on their choices, they will receive either blessing or judgment. So this is really a a, a prophetic call for all of us, as Haggai puts it, to consider your ways. Consider your ways. You know, as you look at this psalm, one thing that you might want to ask is, who is the man that verse 1 is talking about? It actually never tells us to, to be that man. It just describes him here. After all, we seem to be more like the wicked than the blessed man, if we really think about this. We are easily influenced. We are easily swayed. We don't. We can all readily admit delight in God's word day and night. Our affections meander in all sorts of directions. Or we see God's law as more of a duty than a delight. More of something we have to do instead of something we get to do. We wither far more often, it seems, than we yield fruit. And finally and ultimately, we cannot stand in judgment. We are sinners. But friends, the blessed man, the good news here is that this blessed man is ultimately the one man, Christ Jesus. The righteous man died on a cross and in his death, his righteousness, his Perfection is credited to the account of those that would repent and put their faith in him. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God, not on our own, but in him. This is the beauty and the preciousness of the gospel of God. God ultimately provided this man. And, and then he sent this man to this earth so that we could now attain to this. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, here's the choice that lies before you right now. Which way, which path, which road do you want to take? Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. And so I plead with you today to trust Christ. Take the narrow way that leads to to life, not the wide road that leads to destruction. Look to Jesus. And if you've already done that, take this psalm and thank God that he knows the way of the righteous. That through Jesus Christ you have been reconciled with him and that you now know the blessing and the prosperity of having fellowship with him. And then knowing that, resolve in God's power to live wisely in this world and to delight always in God's word. Let's bow together.